Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Yisker sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. We are always and only moving in one direction. Birth getting farther and farther away and death coming closer. The only real commodity is time. I think the first time this became really clear to me was in something I either read or saw in my teenage years. I don't remember if it was a short story or some kind of um, Twilight Zone episode. But I remember that it took place in a world where currency was not dollars, but minutes. What you had in the bank was the time you had left. If you invested and earned well, you had longer. And if luck ran out, so did time. The vignette ended in a casino with a gambler having gone on a terrible losing streak, continuing to hope that the next big bet would earn him back the years, the decades that were gone. But he kept losing, and he was almost broke. He had a friend at the other end of the casino. If he could just reach that friend, that friend could lend him some time. He would pay it back, promise. He goes searching for his friend as his last remaining minutes go by. Tick-tock. I read or saw that once, maybe 35 years ago at this point, and it stuck with me. It's the perfect, although very raw, allegory for what we live through and for what everyone we've ever known and loved has lived through. Whether we want to think about it or not, Every yisker we say on behalf of others is a rehearsal for our survivors' recitations of yisker on our behalfs. Soon. Now, if we thought about this always, we'd suffocate with the enormity of it. We'd be paralyzed. We'd be unable to live. But if we thought about this never, we would be in willful ignorance only temporarily blissful, we'd forget to live. But it's there, the expiration date on all of our lives and all of our loves. One of my favorite comedians is Brian Regan, and I love him because he's smart and he's wise and he's clean. He's thought of as the comics comic. And he has some really great material about getting older and the inevitable and lasting pains and bad news. In one quip, he says, I got up recently one morning and realized my hip hurts. I guess forever. What he does with humor, others do with existential aphorisms. One that has materialized in my mind recently after an odd streak of painful joints, appliances needing fixing, aging parents, communal losses, and other hard things ranging from the stupid and the mundane to the sublime and the overwhelming is this. Life is sometimes 
waiting for the next rotten thing to happen. And then perhaps an add-on as a bit of a salve. And life is about extracting some sweetness, some joy, in between the rotten and calling that a victory. Here's a more lyrical way of saying it. These words were shared from this exact spot at the funeral of Kim Simon, a pressman parent who passed away far too young back in March. These were shared by one of Kim's loving friends and colleagues and were apparently some of the last words that Kim herself ever said. Life is suffering, punctuated by moments of pure majesty. Be sure to live. On some level, that should be the beginning and the end of every Yisker sermon. Is there anything more important to ruminate on? But let me extend it a bit. Last autumn, we hosted the Israeli author Dorit Rabinyan as the inaugural Dr. Baruch Link Memorial Scholar in Residence. Rabinyan became famous for her book, All the Rivers, which tells the aching and touching and controversial love story between a Jewish Israeli woman and a Muslim Palestinian man who meet in New York. From the beginning of their love affair, the protagonist, who's a pretty obvious avatar for the author Dorit herself, is aware that their love cannot last. It's a diaspora love. It's forbiddenness only koshered by its temporariness and it's taking place in exile outside of Israel. In one scene, she writes about this so poignantly, wondering if Chilmi, her lover, feels the same way. She writes, that afternoon we met for lunch at Cafe Aquarium, and then I went to the East Village with him to get his haircut. In the evening, we saw the new film about Frida Kahlo, and when we walked out, he hugged me, and he asked me why I was in such a bad mood. I said I'd just woken up like that, and I avoided telling him anything the next morning, too, when I woke up with that fateful feeling, and all Saturday when it stayed with me, when we sat at the Korean cafe near his place, cooked pasta for dinner, and went back to bed. I couldn't stop calculating how many of these lovely sunlit mornings we still had together. I couldn't stop silently counting the days and the nights, tallying how many cups of coffee we had left, how many walks and meals, how many kisses. And then a paragraph later, at night when I thought about how few chances I still had to love him, I gripped him with the same desperate pain. Tick-tock, leading to pain and to frenzy and alertness. Memories returning at Yisker and other times with pathos and with a power to heal. Is there an antidote to this reality? There's no pill against mortality, but are there things we can do today and all days which, to borrow from the Unatana Tokaf liturgy on the High Holiday, ma'avirin et roa hagzera, that lessen the severity of the decree? I want to suggest two, talk and tell. At my maternal grandfather's unveiling, my mother spoke, which she rarely does in such settings. And she overflowed with emotion and with sage wisdom. She spoke about what the ritual of Kaddish had meant to her. Before her father's death, she had been a Shabbat shulgoer, 
but not a daily millionaire. But for those 11 months, she committed to saying Kaddish with a minion at least once per day. At his grave, as we were revealing the stone, she said that for her, the Kaddish had not been a prayer for the dead, but a prayer to the dead. Her mouth formed ancient Aramaic words praising God, but they were a vehicle for her heart to form modern words speaking to daddy. She rode the words of the Kaddish like a surfer rides the wave. The wave and the words creating the direction and the momentum, but the surfer and the mourner creating the meaning and having the experience. For my mother, this ritual had material benefit. In her words then, she said, Kaddish helped turn an absence into a presence. I'll never forget that sentiment. And though I rue the days which I know are inevitable, and sooner than I could ever wish, I will try to remember it when it is my turn to say Kaddish and speak to her. Mourning and grief thrum with absence. Our own Dr. Michael Berenbaum has explained Poland after the Shoah with evocative words. This is what he said about his first visit to Sobibor, one of the Nazis' extermination camps. He wrote, there's a paradox. It is the presence of absence and the absence of presence. Those words describe Sobibor and Auschwitz and Majdanek and also all of life after loss. Michael goes on, you see something and what you see is also what is not there. How true. And what we do with and what we do to the ones whose presences are absent and whose absences are so heavily present can be the difference between grief that is overwhelming and grief that is, while obviously still sad, somehow ennobling. For my mother, it was talking to her daddy using the words of Kaddish. Now, apparently, talking to the dead is not just for necromancers and mediums. It's becoming more popular to do it and to admit to doing it. Margaret Rankle, a Nashville-based author, had an essay in the New York Times about this in January. It was entitled, More and More, I Talk to the Dead. Here's part of what she wrote. I'm in no hurry to join my beloved dead, but like my mother before me, I'm spending more and more of my days in their company. Next month, my father will have been gone for 20 years, but he's as real to me today as he was on any day of the 41 years we shared on this side of the veil. She continues, I read a newspaper article reporting that NASA will be dismantling the Saturn rocket that rises above the Alabama Welcome Center on I-65 South. And I remember the model Saturn rocket that taller than my 10-year-old self that dad and I built together from chicken wire and paper mache. I hear a Cole Porter song on the radio and I remember my parents dancing in the living room. It's the same way with all my lost beloveds. Reminders take every possible form, the feel of pine needles underfoot, the scent of a passing woman's perfume, the tail end of a song on a coffee shop radio, a letter tumbling out of a long unopened book, the taste of boiled peanuts, salty and warm. 
the reminders loop between past and present, between one lost, one lost loved one and another, a buzzing sweep of sensations and memories and time. I keep searching for the right metaphor to convey what I mean. Is it like a braid, a web, a shroud? And finally the word comes to me. It's a conversation. Every day, all day long, everyone I've ever loved is gathered around the same table talking." End quote. When we talk to the dead, they are still dead, but they are also more alive than should be metaphysically possible. When I officiate at unveilings to this day, including with many of you here in this room, I invite those present to conjure their beloved and speak to him, speak to her, address words to mommy, to mommy and to daddy. These words draw upon a totally different emotional reservoir compared to speaking about them. And when I close my eyes in a few minutes, as we intone the Yisker paragraphs, I will reanimate my four grandparents in my mind's eye and I will speak to them and they will be with me in some way, at least for a moment, back in life, back of life. So how do we lessen the severity of the decree of loss? Talk to the dead. Don't just describe the divine power as Mikhaye HaMetim, reviving the dead. Talk to your loved ones and be their revivifying power. The other stratagem comes right from the holiday we are concluding. The central obligation of the Jew on Pesach is not to avoid chametz, not to buy glotmart out of kosher for Pesach almond milk, something which someone must have done before we got there Tuesday because there was none left, and I'm very unhappy about it. <laughs> the primary duty is l'saper, to tell and retell an ancient story so that it's no longer ancient. It becomes contemporary. I share a teaching by the Sfat Emet, Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter, one of the most beloved of the Gera Rebbe's. I learned it from my colleague, Rabbi Yaffa Epstein. In several places in his commentary on Pesach, the Sfat Emet speaks about how we don't really understand something while we're going through it. And only later, through speaking about it and telling the story of the events, do we make order. Do we make Seder out of it? In the Pesach context, the Jews did not understand their redemption. It happened so fast, bechipazon, hurriedly. And thus, when we retell their story, we're not just reminiscing about a past event. We are retroactively recreating their, that redemption for them as if it were happening now. This reading really raises the stakes of the Magid section of the Seder, and also, I would suggest, the Magid section of our lives. The Magid section of family gatherings. When we tell the stories over and over again, when our kids groan because one more time we're telling the story about when Grandpa told that joke or how great Uncle Irving would make us laugh at Seder by putting Groucho Marx costumes on our faces. We're not just dipping into nostalgia a word which from the original Greek is about homesickness or aching to be there and then, long ago. When we tell stories, we do the opposite. We're not transporting us to them, then, 
We're bringing them to life, to us now. And we're making sense of the arc of their lives, perhaps in a way, in an order, a seder, that may even have been obscured to them. The late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs has a similar insight when he describes the utter unlikelihood of the notion that of the two ancient enemies that the Exodus story describes, the powerful, nearly immortal Egyptians led by Pharaoh or his ragtag slaves, that it would be the slaves who would persist and the slavers and their culture that would be lost to history? That's preposterous. No one would have believed it at the time. How did that come about? To Rabbi Sachs, it is connected to what each culture valued. Their culture valued building edifices and power, pyramids and palaces. In Rabbi Sachs's words, ancient and thus also modern Jewish culture gives a different answer to what is important and towards continuity. He wrote, you don't need to create monuments. All you need to do is tell the story. Generation after generation, you need to engrave your values on the hearts of your children and they on theirs so that you live on in them and so on to the end of time. You need to build a civilization around the home, the school, and education as a conversation between the generations, end quote. Talk and tell. It's not a slogan for a wireless company. It's a slogan for life and in the only ways we are capable of. It's a slogan for conquering death. This past Shabbat we read from Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, the poem that simultaneously tells of the love between earthly lovers and between God and the Jewish people. Nearly the entire text is about a love from a distance, a love despite absence, love with nearly no presence. In the last chapter, we have this verse. One lover is talking to the other who is far, who is distant, and says, make me a seal upon your heart. Why? How? Because love is stronger than death. We heal tragic and painful absence with intentional closeness. We conquer death by inviting them back to life by speaking to them and by telling their tales. We confront the ticking clock with the timelessness of speech and stories. Tick, tock, talk, tell. It is true that death and grief are the price of love. And it's also true that especially today, love is stronger even than death. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.